Welcome to Common Ground Church Rondebosch, a community based in Cape Town, South Africa, who believe that if Jesus is who he says he is, that changes everything. Our sermon podcast aims to unpack this reality, rooted in scripture and dependent on God's spirit. Malawian theologian Isabel Apoopiri describes the book of Ruth as encountering a God who is concerned about the everyday occurrences of ordinary people. Ruth is a remarkable Old Testament book exploring God's sovereignty in his overarching plan for redemption, as well as his ability to be wholly engaged in people's daily trials and struggles. Please continue listening to our next installment of Ruth, a story of redemption. for a fantastic week and you just got to love this church. We're going to gather together for the final and we've thought about everything because we've got the prayer meeting on Thursday morning uh, in order to tee that up. Uh, New Zealand really don't stand a chance at all. They don't know what's going to hit them. If you've got your Bibles, could you please turn to the book of Ruth? Ruth is in the Old Testament. Uh, Ruth comes after the book of Judges and before 1 Samuel, and we are in the midst of a six-part series uh, in the life of this church that we have entitled Ruth. Uh, We heard last week that although Ruth is a book full of a story of redemption and hope, uh, it nevertheless doesn't gloss over the heartache and disappointments that life can throw at us. And as we began last week in chapter 1, Uh, we saw that pain was on the menu and pain continues as we read together from verse 18 in chapter one. So the two women went until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Let's pray. Lord, we pray as we come to your word this evening, we pray, Lord, that you would be with us. Lord, we pray that you would instruct us. We pray that you would help us. We pray that you would strengthen us and comfort us and fortify us and give us insight. And we ask this in your name and for your glory. And all God's people said, I wanna look at this text this evening under three headings, pain, processing, and providence. Let's begin with pain. The events that transpire uh, in this book uh, occurred during the days when the judges ruled. These were dark and difficult days for the people of God. In fact, the final verse of the book of Judges reads as follows. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And for many, this would be a description of utopia, right? (laughs) A leaderless environment in which people can express complete autonomy. But actually, from a biblical perspective, it is a description of disorder and judgment. 
It was a desperate situation for the people of God that required God to intervene in a dramatic way. And in fact, the big arc story of the book of Ruth is about how God establishes a king after his own heart. So these were difficult days, but they weren't just difficult days from a spiritual sense. There was an actual famine in the land. And as we heard last week, Naomi and her husband and two boys were forced to leave Bethlehem looking for greener pastures. Bethlehem, uh, which literally means house of bread, became a house of ruin. And this meant that Naomi and her family were forced to flee to Moab. And at first, things appeared to go really well. Both of their sons were married, albeit to foreign wives. But initially, life seemed good. It seemed like they had dodged a bullet. But what started off as being wonderful quickly turned pear shape. First, Naomi's husband dies. Then, both of her sons died. She is left in a foreign land without any of her original family with her. Verse five of chapter one describes a woman who is utterly destitute with no visible means of support. Every married person fears the premature passing of their spouse. Every parent's worst nightmare is the thought of having to bury their own child. For Naomi, in a very short period of time, she got to experience both of those traumatic events. And more than that, she didn't just bury one of her children, but she buried both. And not in the promised land, but in a foreign land. Friends, it is hard to exaggerate the pain and agony and trauma that Naomi had to endure. How could one person experience so much pain in such a short period of time? Friends, what we discover here in the opening verses of the book of Ruth is that once again, the Bible gives a honest description of the brokenness of life as we experience. The Bible doesn't uh, kind of airbrush trouble out of our lives. It doesn't describe a life that's simply carefree and trouble-free, quite the opposite. It shows the pain and the trauma and the difficulties that we face in life. Here, Naomi's pain is on display. But not only here, throughout the Bible, when we crack it open, we we see that Joseph uh, goes to jail, John is beheaded, Mary becomes a social outcast, Paul is in prison, and Jesus, uh, the man of sorrows familiar with suffering, dies, and even death on a cross. This evening, if you are here and in pain, and you are sure that Christianity is way too superficial to deal with real life issues, with real pain and real hurt. If, if you're here this evening and you're sure that God doesn't understand and that he doesn't care uh, and he doesn't know, please can I invite you to lean in because as we open up this passage here in Ruth chapter one, what we are going to discover is that God knows and God cares And God is way more involved in your life than you would ever first imagine. So firstly, pain. Secondly, processing. 
So Naomi is on the receiving end of these three massive hammer blows of disappointment. And the challenge with trauma is that you don't just get to experience it, but you have to deal with it and you have to process it. So while Naomi is still reeling from all the negative events that are happening in her life, she has to make two very important decisions. The first decision that she makes is she makes the decision to return home. If you've ever set out on a new adventure full of hopes and aspirations only for them to uh, fold and, and, and turn to failure, you will know that maybe going home is the hardest place to go because home can be the place where uh, people know you best and where your weaknesses can be amplified, not concealed. So Naomi makes the decision to go home. Next, she makes the decision to urge her two daughter-in-laws to return to their original family because she can't imagine any future for them in Bethlehem. The first agrees to return, but the second, Ruth, will have nothing to do with it. And Ruth says to Naomi in verses 16 and 17, uh, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. And so Naomi agrees and, and, and Ruth and her return to Bethlehem. And then we are told in verse 19, so the two women went until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them and the woman exclaimed, can this be Naomi? It, it would seem that because of the trauma and the heartache and the difficulty that she experienced that Naomi's um, actual physical appearance had changed. And so when, when she returns, the people in the town are going, can, can, can this be Naomi? Is, is this you, Naomi? And Naomi replies in verse 20, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. She tells them, call me Mara, which means bitter because the Lord Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Well, why call me Naomi? Why call me pleasant? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Naomi's life is a mess. She is broken and she is in pain and she knows whose fault it is. She unreservedly and unapologetically charges God for the situation that she finds herself in. In four different ways, she says the same thing. She says, the Lord Almighty has made my life very bitter. The Lord has brought me back empty. The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me unreservedly, unapologetically, she blames God for her plight. She is angry and she is angry at God. Her life is a mess and she knows whose fault it is. She knows who should take the blame. Now the question we need to ask ourselves is what should we make of this? Well, the first thing is we shouldn't be surprised. It's well documented that anger is in fact a normal part of the grief cycle, right? Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. Anger is 
normally a part of the equation. And we don't need counselors to tell us that actually if we read the Bible, we can see this happening. We can see individuals who go through difficult experience, who, who have the pressure and the heat of life brought on them and the effect in their lives when the heat and the difficulty and the hardship comes is that they push back at God. Think of John the Baptist. Remember, John the Baptist was the guy who was teaching to a multitude. People uh, were responding to God and getting baptized. It was incredible. He was the guy who says, hey, I'm not even worthy to stoop down and and tie Jesus' sandals. He, He acknowledged Christ as the true Messiah. But then John ends up in prison and he calls some of his disciples and he asks them to go to Jesus to ask the question, Are you the one who was to come or should we expect somebody else? Friends, can you see how radical this is? John John has been moved from the side of the Jordan River to now in prison and the effect of his change of location is for him to shrink who Jesus is. Jesus is no longer the Messiah. Jesus is no longer the the coming King who's gonna usher in the kingdom. It's just like, are, are you the one or should we expect somebody else? Or think about Job's wife. Job experiences a very difficult life situation and yet he still remains faithful to the Lord. And when his wife sees this, she despises him and says, are you still holding to your integrity? Curse God and die. This is ridiculous. What are you doing? Trying to be pious and spiritual and pressing to God. Your your life's been nuked. Curse God and die. Or think about the disciples, the disciples who love Jesus when he's healing the sick and casting out demons and doing signs, wonders and miracles and they love that idea but then the day happens when they get into the boat and they're going across to the other side and Jesus is tired, he's fallen asleep, he's got a cushion and then this massive storm hits. And, 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 the, and the disciples are freaked out and, and, and they, they're nearly dying, but Jesus is asleep in business class and they break in and they, they get hold of him and they wake him up and they say, teacher, don't you care? Not, not Messiah, not miracle worker, they've downgraded him. Teacher, don't you care? Friends, whether it's John the Baptist or the disciples or Job's wife or Naomi, It's a very normal response to to, to kind of push back at God when the heat comes. But is it right? Listen to what Don Carson says. Don Carson writes the following. He says, one of the major causes of devastating grief and confusion amongst Christians is that our expectations are false. We do not give the subject of evil or suffering the thought it deserves until we ourselves are confronted with tragedy. If by that point our beliefs, not well thought through, but deeply ingrained, are largely out of step with God, who has disclosed himself in the Bible and supremely in Christ, then the pain from the personal tragedy may be multiplied many times over as we begin to question the very foundations of our faith. Friends, do you hear what Don Carson is saying here? He's saying if you don't have a paradigm for evil and suffering and troubles and storms and difficulties, then when the storm hits you, 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 you're gonna experience a double pain. The first pain is the pain from the actual tragedy that you're experiencing, but the, the, the second pain is the pain as your faith uh, becomes destabilized, as you begin to question whether you can really trust God. It, it, it's like a double whammy if you haven't thought it through. The first hit is 
the hit of the actual difficulty, sickness, death, betrayal, abandonment, personal failure comes as the right hook, but then there's the left hook, and the left hook is the destabilizing effect it has on your relationship with God. I thought if I put God first, I thought if I loved God, I, I, I thought if I was fully committed to God, then stuff like this wouldn't happen. Bad things wouldn't happen in my life. I don't think I can really trust God. Can I trust God? Naomi knows that she can't trust God. She knows that God has emptied her, that God has brought misfortune upon her, that God has afflicted her, that God has made her life very bitter. Naomi is caught by surprise. But friends, I wanna suggest to you that as we read the New Testament, we shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be surprised because the New Testament prepares us. The New Testament warns us about the inevitability of challenge and difficulty and hardships in our life. Jesus says in John 16, 33, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Paul promises in 2 Timothy 3.12, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You don't find this on any bumper stickers, right? You don't go to somebody's house and they don't have this verse on the fridge. You don't get to get a fridge magnet for this one, right? Wanna live a godly life? Wanna put Jesus first? Yes, yes, yes. Well, then you're gonna be persecuted. Peter warns us in 1 Peter 4, 12, dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trials you are suffering as though something strange were happening. According to the Bible, all of us to, uh, in various forms and to differing degrees are gonna experience hardship and difficulties in our lives. Please hold your applause. <laughs> the Bible isn't vague about this. The Bible warns us about this and it, it warns us about this because it wants us to prepare for the inevitability of challenges and storms. Now, if the Bible repeatedly warns us about this, why are so many Christians surprised by it? Well, I think so many Christians are surprised by it because many of us have been fed a kind of health, wealth, prosperity gospel. The idea here is that if you wholeheartedly pursue God, if you, if you put God first in your life, then you're gonna live a carefree and trouble-free life. And if anything does go wrong in your life, it, it can only either be because you don't have enough faith or because there's some sin in your life. But friends, I just wanna ask you, does that proposal, does that diagnosis of life square up with the great heroes of, of the Christian faith? I mean, if we were here this evening to try and work out like, like who's, 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 who's the biggest spiritual hero in church history? We obviously exclude Jesus from the conversation because he's unique. Who are we gonna go for as the person uh, that has lived the most heroic Christian life? I think I would put my vote for the Apostle Paul. I mean, this is the guy who said, for me to live is Christ and die is gain. I mean, how radical is that? My whole life is defined by living for Jesus and to die is gain. And how did it work out for him? How did this wholehearted devotion for Jesus work out for him? Well, in 2 Corinthians 11, he lists it. This is how it rolled out for him. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with a rod. Once I was stoned, and that wasn't in observatory. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've constantly been on the move. I've labored and toiled and often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked besides everything else. I face daily the pressures of my concern for all the churches. 
Friends, this idea that if you wholeheartedly pursue God, then everything's just gonna work out in your life just doesn't match up with the Bible. It doesn't match up with the great heroes of the faith. Think about Joseph, think about Daniel, think about Stephen, think about Mary. Think about people in this community who at work decided to put God first, not to blur the edges, to pursue righteousness. And what was the result? Well, they got overlooked for a promotion because actually the place where they were working quite liked the fact that people would work in the gray. It was more profitable for them. Or, or, or think about the men and women who decided to really put God first and to honor God with their body and not play the field. And the result of that is that they're still single while others who did play the field are married. Friends, Christianity is more complicated than the health and wealth preachers would have us believe. C.S. Lewis said, if you want ease and comfort, try a bottle of port, do not try Christianity. If that's what you're after, if ease and comfort is the deal, port will be a much better servant for you. Beloved, if you do not have a paradigm for evil or suffering or difficulty in the Christian life, can I respectfully say that you have oversimplified your walk with God and you have created a category of Christianity that doesn't even fit the great heroes of the Bible. And whether you are aware of it or not, you are actually placing yourself in a position of vulnerability. According to Don Carson, you are vulnerable to the double impact, the double hit, the, the, the pain of the actual tragedy that you will experience, but then also the destabilizing effect of that tragedy as you then begin to think, well, I can't trust God because I thought trusting God meant that stuff like this would never happen. I'm keeping my side of the bargain. Why isn't God keeping his side? Friends, as we read the Bible and as we reread the Bible, we see that God, uh, meets us uh, in storms and difficulty in, in, in three different ways. Sometimes, praise God, God does save us from the storm. The, the Red Sea is parted, the walls of Jericho fall, Lazarus is raised from the dead. So sometimes he saves us from the storm. Other times he saves us in the storm. Daniel is saved in the lion's den, not from the lion's den. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego are saved in the furnace, not from the, the furnace. And other times, God saves us only ultimately and eternally. The Bible doesn't hide this fact. John the Baptist is beheaded. Stephen is stoned to death. These men aren't saved from the storm or in the storm, but only eternally and ultimately. Actually, the Apostle Paul had all three of these experiences. As you read his life, there was a time when he was saved uh, from the storm. There were people wanting to kill him and arrest him, but he was able to escape. There's another time when he is saved in the storm. He is arrested and put in prison. But God brings an earthquake that results in him being freed. But then he is rearrested, and church history records that he was ultimately beheaded in Rome under the reign of Nero. Paul experienced all three scenarios, which is why we should pay careful attention when he writes the following in Romans 8:28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Friends, what is the difficult word to embrace in this verse? Is it not the word all, that God is working all things for the good, 
Friends, it's easy to believe that God is at work when you are rescued from the storm. But friends, when you are in the storm or when somebody you love it dies and is only saved ultimately and eternally, then it is hard to believe that God is at work. Friends, when storms hit our lives, when difficulties come at us, we've got a choice. Either we can trust God or we can charge God. Naomi charges God. She says, don't call me Naomi, don't, don't call me Pleasant, I'm rebranding. The person formerly known as Pleasant is now bitter. The Lord has made my life very bitter. The Lord has brought me back empty. The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. But friends, there is another way. There is a different path. There is a better path. And the better part, path is that when you are in the midst of a storm, that you trust God rather than charge God. Stephen in uh, Acts 7.59, while he's been stoned to death, prays out the following. He says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. When he said this, he fell asleep. Friends, this is profound. While he has literally been stoned to death, Stephen is putting his trust in Jesus. More than that, he's applying the gospel to his heart. And he's saying, Lord, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He's trusting God, he's not charging God, he's not saying, God, I put you first, I defended the gospel, why am I dying? Or or, or think about Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. Friends, this is incredible. They lived in Babylon, the the one superpower of the day and the most powerful person in the world of the day was King Nebuchadnezzar. He was a really big deal. He thought that he was such a big deal that he, he made a massive statue of himself and he wanted everybody to bow down to it. So there was gonna be a national worship time of this massive statue of himself. And guess what? The gong goes and the whole nation the whole nation bows before the statue except for three crazy guys. And three crazy guys are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they are brought before the king who they have now embarrassed. And he said to them that they are gonna burn to death in the furnace. And these dudes knew how to do their furnace. These were the first prime masters. They got, they, they, got, they got their furnace going. The furnace was so hectic that the dude that opened the door of the furnace died. That's how hot it was. And it's like Nebuchadnezzar is waiting. And they say to the most powerful person on the planet at the time, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he doesn't, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. Friends, how radical is this? How amazing is this uh, non-conditional obedience? The God we serve is able to save us, but even if he doesn't, even if we end up frying, We want you to know, King Nebuchadnezzar, that we're not gonna bow down to false idols and we're not gonna bow down to your statue. God can rescue us, but even if He doesn't, our allegiance belongs to God and God alone. Well, think about Job. Job loses everything. His business is trashed. His livestock die. His servants die. All of his children are taken out. And yet we read in Job, uh, chapter one, verse 20, that Job got off, got up, tore off his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship. Isn't this incredible? 
whole life nuked. And Job's knee-jerk response is to worship. And then he says, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all of this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. His whole life falls out. And what is his response? His response is to worship. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And he didn't sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Friends, Michael Eaton says, that Romans 8.28, for we know that in all things, God works for the good for those who love Him and are called according to His purposes, can be fairly translated when everything is going wrong. Actually, everything is going right. And you're saying, how is that possible, Stephen? And the answer is because God is at work. God is at work, God is at work. God isn't only at work in your life when things are going well, but He's at work in your life all the time. The irony is that the health wealth preacher's vision of God is too small. They can only imagine that God is at work when things are going well. They're preaching a God of the good stuff. God is only active in your life when things are going well. And if they're not going well, there's a problem. We've got to solve it so that it ends up being good. But the God of the Bible is bigger than just the God of the good stuff. The God of the Bible is able to take our pain and our difficulty and our hardships and our delays and our confusions and He can put it into his poiki course and he can mix it together and he can turn it to something that is beautiful and awesome and that is for our good and for his glory. Friends, can I ask you this evening, how, how do you respond to storms? Do, do you charge God or do you trust God? When difficulties hit your life, how do you respond? Do you trust God or do you charge God? Now I know what some of you are thinking, this, this is crazy, Stephen, this is so unrealistic. I can imagine Naomi in Ruth chapter one wanting to you know, reach out from the text and grab my throat and throttle me and saying, Stephen, this is so unrealistic. You don't know the pain I'm going through. How can you preach stuff like this? And I just wanna say, if that's what you're feeling, can you just give me one more verse? I just need one more verse. I just need to read the final verse of chapter one. Could you give me one more verse, please? Let's read it together. The final verse of Ruth chapter one. So Naomi returned from uh, Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Chapter one isn't just about pain, it isn't just about processing, but it is about providence. It's about providence. If you're here this evening and you are charging God for the difficulties that are going on in your life, I've got good news for you. And the good news for you is that God isn't easily offended. While Naomi is busy ranting in verses 20 and 21, God actually isn't paying any attention to her rant because He is busy redeeming. Because verse, the very next verse, verse 22 tells us that Naomi and Ruth arrive in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. And you're thinking, what has the barley harvest got to do with anything? Well, actually, if you read the whole book, the barley harvest has got everything to do with God's redemptive purpose. It is the first domino that falls that produces this wonderful and glorious outcome. 
In many ways, Ruth uh, chapter one, verse 22 is very much like yesterday's game at the 60th minute. Do you remember the game? What's the deal? It's 15 points to six. We, we look like we are, we, we are gonna be leaving Paris with our tails between our legs. We don't look remotely like we're gonna score at all. But on the 60th minute, it is meant to be a game played by men against men, but we are mad enough to send on an ox in a game that is meant to be man on man. And the ox arrives, and when the ox arrives, the game changes because we have four scrum penalties from that moment on. Uh, crescendo in, in the 77th minute where we get our fourth scrum penalty. And then Pollard puts the kick through. When was the first domino? The first domino is the 60th minute when Ox enters the frame. Game changer. You don't need to do your YouTube analysis this week. You've got it here at church already. <laughs> Ruth 122 is the Ox moment. It's the first domino. This barley harvest is the first domino that produces one of the most magnificent redemptive stories uh, in the human history. How about that for a statement? Back that up, buddy. Okay, I'm going to try my best. Here's the deal. They rock up from Moab, destitute. That means they've got nothing. They've got no food. What are they going to do? Well, God is so awesome that he tees up his economy to care for the marginalized, the needy, the foreigners, uh, the poor. And so they rock up in Bethlehem and Ruth goes out to go glean. Gleaning was this idea that if, if, if you owned a farm, you weren't meant to harvest everything. You weren't meant to maximize your profit, but you were to leave some food on the, on the side for the poor, the foreigners, and the needy. The very first farm that Ruth just happens to rock up at is owned by this guy called Boaz. And Boaz is an incredible guy because I don't know if you've noticed, just because God says something doesn't mean that people are gonna do it, right? And a lot of people didn't do what God said. And you would think that after you've had multiple years of a famine, if you were ever not going to uh, allow some gleaning on the side, after a massive famine would be the moment that you did that. But not our Boaz, he loves God. And so he leaves uh, some of his harvest for the poor, for the needy, for the foreigner. And so Ruth rocks up at Boaz's thing and she's got food. More than that, we're gonna see this next week. Boaz is an incredible guy. He doesn't just provide food for them, but he provides protection and care. And one thing leads to a next, and we're gonna go into the beautiful detail of this, but it crescendos in chapter four and verse 13, where we read the following. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. The woman said to Naomi, not to Ruth, but to Naomi, the woman said to Naomi, praise be the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Then Naomi, grandma, took the child in her arms and cared for him. The woman living there says, Naomi has a son and they named him Obed. And friends, this is just like 
an incredible story. This is like incredible redemption. How awesome, how amazing is this? Naomi the ranter, the one who's angry and bitter, the one who does the whole renaming gig, the artist formerly known as Pleasant is now bitter. Call me bitter, thank you very much. She is the one who's holding her grandson and everybody's like, this is awesome, this is awesome. Look, God's provided you with a child. May he become mighty in Israel. More than that, how about your daughter-in-law? She's like better than seven sons. It would seem like there's some biblical evidence that maybe like women can outperform the guys. This is, this is like an incredible thing here. And, and like everybody just wants to applaud and they just wanna put a bow on it. And it's just like, this is the greatest redemption story. Thank you very much and good night. And this is like incredible, but whoa, 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 time out. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to go to VAR. We need to check something out here because it's just like, whoa, 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 whoa. Just before you crack the champagne, the writer to the book of Hebrews uh, to, to Ruth says, I've just got one more thing. The dude's name is not just Obed. Actually, he becomes the father of Jesse, the father of David. Hello, King David. Hello, God's great redemptive purpose. Remember, what's the problem? No king, leaderless community, everybody doing what's right in their own eyes. God's gonna establish a king, a king after his own heart. And then the writer to the book of Ruth says, pop the champagne cords, thank you very much. This is the greatest redemptive story ever. Thank you, good night. <coughs> Matthew says, not so quick, buddy. I've got, a bit, I've got a couple of verses to add to this. Because Matthew chapter one, verse one goes like this. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, mic drop, son of David, son of Abraham. And just in case you haven't connected the dots, guys, I'm gonna help you in verse five, because Solomon, the father of Boaz, his mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. Jesse, the father of King David. So now the artist formerly known as Pleasant becomes the great, great grandmother of King David who gets us to Jesus. This is incredible. And when you just think, surely there's not more. Actually, there is more. Because in Luke 1, 32 and Acts 2, verse 30, we are told that in the new heavens and the new earth, King Jesus, the true Messiah, the King that fulfills what all of the other kings couldn't fulfill, the ultimate King who is gonna reign forever and we are gonna be with Him forever, that King sits on David's throne. And so if you are a Christian here tonight, it is not outside of the realm of possibility that one day you will be worshiping Jesus. You will be glorying in Christ and a lady will sidle up to you and she'll go like, Jesus is amazing, right? And you go, sure is. And she'll go, it's part of my butt line. And do you check that throne? That's my great, great grandson's throne. And she will just like give you the biggest smile ever. And friends, the lady who was ranting, the artist formerly known as Pleasant, is purring for all eternity. John Favell, the Puritan, puts it like this. 
The providence of God is like Hebrew words. It can only be read backwards. Friends, when everything is going wrong, actually everything is going right. Charles Spurgeon says, when you can't trace his hand, trust his heart. I can't, why did that happen? Why did I have to experience that? Why this pain? Why this disappointment? Why this delay? I don't get it. When you can't trace his hand, trust his heart. Don Carson puts it like this. He says, we repeatedly learn from Scripture that the scale of time during which God works out his purposes for us are far greater than our incessant focus on the present. Toddlers pester their parents with urgent cries for now. From God's perspective, we adults cannot appear greatly different. Naomi never knew she would be an ancestor of Jesus the Messiah. She could not possibly have enjoyed any prospect of being written up in the canon of Scripture that hundreds of millions of Jews and Christians alike would read for millennia. Her time scale was far too small for that. I'm not blaming her. I am saying that there are many instances in Scripture where the time scale on which God works out His purpose is vastly greater than we can imagine. Perhaps the way you and I hold up under suffering may be instrumental in the conversion of someone who brings up his family in the fear of the Lord so that his daughter's son becomes the next Whitfield or Spurgeon or Carey or Wilberforce. There comes a time when by rereading the Scriptures, it dawns on us that God frequently utilizes and blesses small acts of faithfulness in the context of deep misery to bring forth blessing we could not have possibly asked for, but would have been happy to suffer for. Friends, when everything is going wrong, actually everything is growing right. When you cannot trace his hand, trust his heart. Let's pray together. Lord, we just come to you this morning and we just say, Lord, that we are amazed at who you are. We are amazed that you are able to arrange and orchestrate things for our good and for your glory. We thank you, Lord, that you are so awesome and majestic, that you are able to take our pain and our brokenness and our difficulties and put it into your poikikos and make something that is beautiful and majestic. But Lord, we also do want to confess to you, Lord, that left to ourselves, we can often charge you instead of trusting you. And if that's your situation tonight, if you've come in restless, if you've come in, if you're honest, disappointed at God, frustrated, feeling like your relationship with the Lord is chafing, not knowing why certain events are turning out the way that they are. Can I just invite you in the presence of God just to say, sorry, Lord. Sorry, Lord, that I'm not trusting you, that I'm charging you, that I'm pushing back. I pray, Holy Spirit of God, May you bring a revelation of the true greatness of God. Lord, may we be able to see you for who you are, this one who is sovereignly in control of our events. That when everything seems like it's going wrong, when our life seems to be 
broken and unrepairable. At that very moment, you are the God of the barley harvest. You are the God who is arranging and orchestrating things way beyond our greatest imaginations. And so as a community this evening, Lord, we put our trust in You. We say, King Jesus, that we trust You. We thank You that You're gonna be seated on David's throne for all eternity. And then when we're with You, we're gonna be reminded that You're a God of incredible, <coughs> incredible redemption. May we live in the goodness of the reality of Your love and grace and redemption. May You meet us at our point of pain. May You prepare us for storms ahead. May we see You clearly and be those that live for Your glory. And all God's people said,